Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Jonathan Ashley, who is the director and founder of Everything That Is Cloud, an IT and services company in Sheffield, South Yorkshire. Uh, Jonathan, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, first and foremost, uh, Jonathan, this podcast is all about the uh, topic of leadership and effective leadership at that. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? Well, I, I think um, having a bit of a sports background, um, a leader to me is somebody that uh, that sort of leads from the front, uh, doesn't shy away from sort of the hard work, um, tries to ensure that uh, I'm conveying a, a positive example to, uh, to, to those that I, that I work with and, and work on my team. That's fantastic. And um, good leadership um, in particular is um, no more under the microscope than it is now with the fallout of the uh, the COVID-19 outbreak, no less. Tell me, for you and your industry, how has it been attempting to navigate the past couple of weeks? It's, um, it, it's, been, it's been very interesting, obviously. Um, uh, it, it's completely changed the dynamic of the industries that we work with, typically. Uh, so lots of our customers are obviously facing uh, facing challenges in their business. Um, so being a, a support business, um, we provide um, a lot of the uh, IT services um, that our customers use. Um, we provide them, as, as the name suggests, with a, a full cloud solution. Um, so for them, while they were uh, already set up to effectively work anywhere at any time, uh, there's still been that uh, transition from um, working in the office to working from home. And while there was um, original business continuity um, solutions set up for those clients, uh, effectively it was about probably refreshing people's memories on how we were going to deliver those in terms of um, little things like setting people up on their home computers or their laptops at home, uh, passwords they may have forgotten and that sort of thing. So it, it put quite a big strain on our um, support desk uh, and on our, and our technical team uh, in general. Um, and then on the flip side of that, we obviously have um, uh, sales and marketing administrative functions as well. Um, and what it's meant is that they've had to kind of change what they do in their day-to-day um, running of things. So we've really tried to pull together as a team um, from a leadership perspective. Um, we've tried to um, really get into more of a task-based system where we're uh, building mini teams and, and uh, tasking with, uh, with challenges for the day, for example, um, if, they're, if they're doing work online, just to start to um, ensure there's good habits being formed while, while our staff and, uh, are working from home as well. Um, so again, we, we have a full remote operation now. Uh, our office is, uh, uh, is now closed and, and all of our staff are working um, from their, uh, their individual homes. And, and what it's meant really is, is particularly some of our, I suppose some of our younger staff um, who potentially haven't gone through change um, um, necessarily like this or business continuity um, uh, initiatives. It's just been a, a um, that uh, there's no sort of um, uh, dark place that anybody's falling into, and, and so, we, so we try and reach out to all of our staff. We're doing things differently. We're finding different ways to do things, and I think some of these will have lasting. Um, uh, impressions on, on how we work in the future and, and therefore to some degree um, we're also trying to take uh, 
some knowledge with um, particularly a lot of our younger staff who um, are a lot more um, diverse in how they use social media, how they interact with their friends, that sort of thing, and trying to put some of those things in place in, in, in business as well, and uh, maybe uh, you know maybe change the uh, the, the thinking somewhat uh, around uh, the, the way we do try and lead people and, and mm. give people a bit more of our empowerment in, in how we do things. Certainly, it's um, going to be a big change um, in, from a leadership perspective, especially. And uh, you talk about, of course, the importance of that team cohesion there. And it brings into light the responsibility of a leader to create a culture which promotes strong communication, strong self-motivation, so that when teams aren't necessarily together in one place, they can still keep working and still keep producing results. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, Absolutely. I think from uh, from our perspective, um, uh, and, and again from a leadership perspective, I think you know what what what's really um, uh, been key to, to the way I'm running things is um, uh, really just going through similar routines that um, have made uh, our business successful, um, and, and that's everything from getting up in the morning at, at half five and getting out, getting the dog out for. Uh, for a three mile walk, getting back, getting, you know, getting uh, sort of seated and booted and uh, making sure I'm at, uh, um, uh, whether it be my home, uh, home office or, uh, or the actual office, you know, making sure that, um, the routine's not necessarily changing. Um, uh, so that's, that's been quite critical. And I think, again, I, I sort of lean on the empowerment side of things. I think, um, you know, that there, there is leadership, um, and, and there is, um, you know, le- leadership by empowerment. And I think, um, you know, what's been key, um, particularly over this last period, is uh, effectively how um, dealing with various people in, in their in their individual ways and making sure you're getting the most out of people, giving them some guidance and direction, but also sort of saying to them, look, it's okay if if uh, you know if, if you are making decisions on things and if you're in power, you know you're going through the decision making process and if you if you if, if something doesn't work out then you know what we we accept that together and uh, um you know we, we we support the person through that and i think from that we're actually seeing some real positive uh, positive mindsets people are really enjoying um uh the, uh the the way that they're working under that sort of umbrella um but, but also, I think um, from a results perspective, because people feel as though they've got more of a vested interest uh, in the outcome of the uh, the actions that they're going through, um, you know, it means in actual fact we end up um, with better results as a team as well. And that's not just through this period; that's that's the way we've led uh, led the business for a long time. We almost ask each person to be very entrepreneurial in their approach and uh, and, and really almost um, have a have a business ownership type attitude around it that, you know, if, if this was their business, um, how would they be doing things differently in their day-to-day uh, role? Um, and we try and give them some direction around that and, and make sure that uh, we still do have sort of everybody sort of singing from the same hymn sheet. But um, by the same token, um, you know, we, we are looking for, uh, you know, for, for people to step up and almost be leaders themselves as well. Absolutely. And uh, drawing on your own experience from trying to direct a team through this um, crisis and direct a business through this crisis, do you have any advice for leaders who are facing difficult situations at the moment? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because we're, we're in, in an industry that um, is very much led by uh, technology. Um, and, I, and I suppose you know, the, the conversation that we've we've always had with our customers, sort of selling these solutions into people and really um, adding value to their to their businesses, has always been around 
um, providing them with a real flexible way of working. Um, but you always sort of end up looking across the table and they're thinking, yeah, well, you know, we, we, we do want a flexible way of working. We do want all of our data to be secure in one place. But by the same token, are we really ready for people to be working at home? And I, and I, and I think um, what's, uh, what's certainly, um, you know, from our side of things, as, as well as our customers, um, I think, um, you know, there are roles within businesses where people have always um, either been on the road or working from home and they're in a, a trusted position. But um, I think if you'd said to uh, said the company sort of six months ago, right, we're going to take all your staff and get them to work from home, um, you would have had some grumbles and groans and hmm, do we really want to do that? Um, but I think what's been interesting is is that we've almost been, well, we have obviously been forced into into doing that from an industry or from a business perspective. Um, and what it's shown is really that um, that, that obviously uh, um, the, the the staff that companies have on board um, really take that to heart and want to do it. It's not a case that they can, uh, um, you know, come to work in their pajamas and things like that and be half as productive. Um, you know, people people obviously want to get on and do their roles regardless of where they're working from. Um, and, I, and I suppose it's that trust in your staff that. Um, uh, I think from the you know, the venture, the, the, the journey we've been on sort of the last four and a half years in, in business, um, but also in, in the last um, few weeks, where that that there's an immense trust in your staff, and I think um, you've almost got to go for it, take that plunge, and uh, and trust in your staff, and and uh, and ensure that um, they have your full support. Because I think if you show that they've got your full support. Um, you know they they will work um, uh, you know work positively and uh, and, and it'll be a uh, you know a, a great environment to work from. It's been uh, very very interesting doing a lot of video conferences and things both internal and external with um, with, with some clients as well. And uh, um, it is it, you know it is quite a positive experience. Everybody seems to be wanting to get on and uh, um, and, and ensure that um, you know that their, their business life and, and the success they've been achieving is. Uh, you know, they're, they're driving that forward. So, so yeah, so the biggest thing I think is trust in your staff um, that we've really found, um, uh, particularly as a small business owner, um, you know, as you, and we, we've grown from sort of four staff up to uh, to the 25, uh, eventually on 30 staff. Um, so still by, you know, by, by uh, most of those metrics, yeah, still very, very small. Um, but even going from, from, from four up to sort of 10, 12, 15, 20, you're having to put immense trust into your staff. And, um, and, and that's the thing I think that, um, you know, even people leading much larger firms uh, have to remember that, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're staff leading this for the long term as well and, uh, you know, want, want to participate in the, uh, in the strategic journey that they're on. Absolutely. Well, we talk about that trust and we also talk about that journey that ETI Cloud, your business, has been on. And before we essentially wrap things up um, here, I would like to get an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself or those stuff for ETI Cloud and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly beyond the COVID-19 outbreak as well. Yeah, so I, I think, it, again, as I mentioned originally, it is a bit of an interesting time for us. Um, our main, um, our primary products are all geared around um, providing um, firms with the ability to work anywhere at any time. But more importantly, it's, it's about bringing um, scalable levels of security and performance to their IT infrastructure so that they can just get on and, and run their businesses as effectively as they, uh, as they can and, and, uh, and, and take that sort of strategic direction. 
without having to sort of look over their shoulder and worry about sort of IT issues and things. So with that in mind, um, it's been very interesting. Um, we are already um, continuing on uh, with uh, selling our, our solutions to firms. We've had um, one of our busiest uh, month ends this last uh, last couple of weeks, and they were already that um, they were uh, opportunities that were already uh, being discussed pre sort of COVID nineteen, um, and companies have had the confidence to move forward with them. Um, we expect. Uh, and, and we have planned for uh, quite a busy year. Um, our um, uh, our growth pattern has been effectively doubling our numbers for the last uh, last four years, um, and and we continue to, uh, to you know to have that same sort of strategy in place. Um, the biggest challenge for ourselves really is as we grow, making sure that we can still um, provide the same quality service. Um, and, and, and with that um, becomes uh, you know, more of a staffing element. And, and that tends to be the area that, that we're more concerned with these days is we know we've got the right, uh, right product set for the marketplace. We know we have the uh, customer ethos and we've actually created a new, um, a really strong customer excellence program. Um, but it's more uh, about taking on too much too soon and making sure that we can still scale at the right level um, without overdoing it and then providing a substandard service. So so for us, it's more about the operational piece. Um, our business grows grows quite rapidly on uh, on referrals anyway from, uh, from existing clients and partners that we have. Um, but it's, it's just about getting that piece right. So from a strategy perspective, while we look at this as, um, uh, from a business perspective, a, a bump in the road, certainly not from a health perspective, so it's really a lot more serious than that. Um, but from a business perspective, we, we look at this as a bit of a bump for us, um, primarily because of the industry that we're in. Um, looking at some of our customers and some of the sectors that, they, that they're in, um, generally speaking, they tend to be in professional services. Um, and um, I, I suppose we, we have some concerns about um, uh, how they will come out of this, but um, you know, we, we believe those services that they provide are, are critical services to, uh, to business uh, and, to, um, and, and to the general public as well, um, those being sort of legal services, accountancy, recruiting, um, you know, those, those, those general sort of uh, um, uh, professional service um, uh, roles. So we would expect that, that they will be very busy uh, it'll be a bit more spiky than what what our uh, business growth will be, um, and what we'll need to do is just be prepared for that from the standpoint that um, as some of those spikes come in, they and they have to either um, add you know uh, large numbers of users into into their environment, or if there's mergers and acquisitions that are happening because of um, you know financial benefits or, or uh, financial hardship with certain firms, um, we've got to be ready to be able to uh, ebb and flow with them as, as we go through that. So. So for us, it's really about making sure our operations are really solid. Um, and even, you know, even going through this particular period, um, we've taken on two staff this week. So uh, we had um, uh, two, um, two technical staff join us on, uh, on Monday to get started. So we're actually expanding during this particular period. Um, and we're expanding because we, you know, we expect to be uh, coming out of this um, in a uh, very, very strong position. We want to ensure that we're... Uh, um, we're at pace with our customers' needs, and we, um, you know, we can certainly handle their demands uh, uh, from a customer's perspective um, when, uh, when, when when they start asking for it. So, so yeah, so real positive. 
um, real positive picture. And, um, you know, I, I think that the strengths lie in our ability to provide a really solid product and then back that up. Um, uh, you know, once that's been, been delivered and customers are using the, the particular service in their day-to-day businesses, um, we back that up with having a really strong um, customer excellence program that, um, that we feel in the industry is second to none. So, uh, so yeah, so it's, uh, it's been a big help in terms of uh, reputationally uh, bringing more business on board for ourselves. It's fantastic to hear that there is some uh, positivity to be taken from the uh, whole situation as well there. Uh, Jonathan, um, it's been an absolute pleasure, I have to say, having you on the programme today and also incredibly insightful. And I think it would be fantastic to have you back on the programme in a few months' time just to look at this retrospectively and see how those hopes have been borne out for you. So thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on the programme today to speak with myself for the benefit of the listeners. Super. Thanks very much for your time, Scott. Appreciate it. It's been wonderful. We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Scott who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. Match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that 
this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club Quite. you know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, 
everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a on. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but 
what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was what was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at the times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift our both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know, Eva, when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, 
especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and an incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary numbers yeah i mean in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. 
and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.